I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke 15 and just kind of hover there for a second. Luke 15. When you find it, look up so I know you have the location. We're going to do some interaction here, which normally doesn't happen in preaching, but humor me, okay? Um, why, why do we worship? Jesus. <laughs> That's the right answer no matter what question anybody asks. All right, cherry picker. Somebody give me something else. Let me, let me put it another way. What's, what's behind the emotion when you sing? Lifting your hands, your eyes are closed, you're leaning in. What is it? Give me something. Tell me pieces and parts to this. Surrender, hearing truth upon us. What? Praise. Closeness. Joy, stirring affections. Yeah. There's not a wrong answer here. Tell me what you do. Yeah. Anybody add anything to that? Why we do what we do? Like a sacrifice, sir. Yeah, we were made to worship, so that's why we do it. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming, like, if we just stopped and said, let's just do this for the next several days Mm -hmm. and just said, let's just focus on why we're thankful or why we worship or why do we have hearts for God, it's... It should be kind of a long, long one-on list of things like that. Um, but I suppose the essence of the whole thing that you just mentioned, if we were able to synthesize that down to one expression, it could be because the greatness of God is seen in, in the goodness that he's shared with us. God is great in all ways, amen? amen. Okay, but you, church, if you, follow, if you follow Christ, you avoid pieces of his greatness called wrath, fury, judgment, All those things are also great of God, but you and I experience the goodness of God. We've been lavished, we sang in the song, with his grace. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that's what we are. There's there's an experience for the church. We sing of his goodness and you you say that in view of what you deserve because without without a covering, without a savior, every one of us deserves to be under the hand of God's judgment, Right? That's just the reality of it. So we, we have so much to sing for because we're the deserving people, or the undeserving people. We're just like, God, why, why this kind of mercy? Why this kind of grace? Your love is hard to fathom, hard to, hard to even mention. It just overwhelms us. So I think that's, in essence, what you said, what you talked about, and why we sing. But let's, let's just be transparent for just a second, all right? <clears throat> is it hard for us at times... Um, to really recognize the goodness of God? Like, do you ever come to the place in your journey where you doubt that he's good? Tell me, tell me why you doubt his goodness. Distraction. Pain. Pain. What's that? Bitterness. Bitterness. Simple nature. Pride. Enemy, pride. What was that one? Grief. Grief. Yeah, I mean, there's a thousand reasons why what is ultimately true gets clouded, isn't there? 
There's lots of reasons. Most of the time it's us. I, I just want to be honest about that. It's, it's our particular failure that puts us in a state of paranoia spiritually. And we kind of go, okay, wait a minute. Here I am back in the pig trough again. And I have confessed the goodness of God. I've confessed the person of Jesus. And here I am back in the old ways and the old patterns. And then you start to go, wait, wait a minute. Now I, now I, I need double judgment because I was rescued and I've gone back. And so this, this endless cycle of, of guilt, we have weaknesses we can't overcome, it seems at least. We have a lack of faith and we're skeptical by nature. In, in, in the way we've just described the love of God, it's pretty grand. You understand that? That's why it sounds like foolishness to those who are perishing because you're, you're speaking gibberish. Like you, you can be loved in a way that no one on the planet knows love. The only form of unconditional love the world has ever known. You can be loved eternally. You can be loved in such a way that all of your failures can be covered. You can be loved in such a way that he could establish, God would establish in you greatness and using you, this broken, twisted thing, for his glory. It's, it sounds absurd, to be honest with you, but <clears throat> I think there's a point in time where we struggle enough where we're just skeptical that that could be true. Like, really? And, and there isn't a believer in the, in the world that doesn't at moments after their confession come back to going, well, is it that good? <laughs> is he going to be that good? Is he going to hold on to his commitments? Is he going to be faithful to his promises? Is he going to deliver for us? And, and I think that's pretty normal too. Um, do you know what um, GameCast is? Not, not a game, but if you go on ESPN, like, like I did today, and they're, they're playing a game, and it's a computer printout, basically a, a a textual thing that you can actually watch a game in play. You know what I'm talking about, guys? No? All right. Well, if you've ever noticed at the bottom of kind of the football field that they put on there, there's a percentage of winning category. You ever noticed that? And it just kind of scrolls. It's very tiny at the bottom. And what happens to that percentage number is every time a play is made on the football field, that number just goes up or it goes down. Like, so they're tracking which particular team has the highest percentage to win. And if something goes good for that team, the number climbs. If something bad happens to that team, the number drops. You know what I'm saying? I, I think a lot of us feel like God has a percentage marker on us. And that it's tracking somewhere in the kingdom of God. And they're here, I'm having a good day. And the percentage of, of satisfaction or joy in God or God's love of me kind of grows with every good action I make and and it shrinks, and it's like it's running all the time. I found it interesting when I was watching the game today. It was just, it was, from what I could tell, it, like a, it felt like a boat race right off the get-go. Kansas City won that game, but I was watching the percentage of winning, and the clock got down to zeros, and they hadn't yet given 100% to Kansas City. They won the game 31 to 13, and they still wouldn't move it to 100%. Seems absurd, right? Therein lies another great illustration. A lot of us are, God has already said he's finished it. Jesus has already come. He's died. He's risen. He's granted you salvation and life and inheritance. And we still think the clock can't tick over to 100%. Like it's not guaranteed. Like somehow there's something else just not quite there. There's this skepticism in us. Well, here's the deal. What if I told you that God's main concern for you isn't that you get it right? What if I told you that God's main concern is that you would truly realize how much he loves you? What if that is the preeminent reason why he communicates to man? And how much that love will make you right? 
See, there's this absurd human part of us that wants to earn our way and solve our problems. But if God was silly just trying to deal with our problems and settle it himself, what if he just wanted you to know that? What if that version, what if that reality so changed your heart and your affections that you would go silly love to God as opposed to performance, right? I think that's what he wants for us. What makes the good news good, what makes a discussion about the love of God so profound is that it's unlike any other love the world has ever seen. This love that we're talking about doesn't exist anywhere. Not between you and anyone, not between someone you admire and whoever they choose to pour their affections on. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the planet. God's love is truly the only unconditional love the world knows. Unconditional. Nothing attached. It is that kind of love that is before you even were kind of love. That he has set his affections on you before the foundations of the world. You weren't even made. And he knew you and he loved you. That's what the scriptures say. This kind of love is in spite of you kind of love. It's the up to him kind of love. The sovereign control kind of love. The kind of love that's all in his camp and not in my camp. It's his love and it's unlike anything else. I've had a couple relationships in my life where I thought... I could use the word, I really love you. And I, I still use that word because it's the right word to use. But there should be a different word for God's love because it isn't the same. I thought, <clears throat> you know, not to disappoint you, but when you get married, you're going to say, you're going to stand in front of a preacher someday and you're going to look at this woman and this man and you're going to, I love you. Yeah. you. You'll get there. <laughs> you just don't know. It's just not that way. You're going to give it your best. You're going to try. You're going to grow. But it won't be unconditional. And then, and then if God, if you want, if God wills, you're going to have a little kid and you're convinced, you're convinced there's no pure form of love than that little person. They got no agenda. They just like you. They, they don't think you're ugly. They don't think you're weird. They don't think you're stupid. They just dig you. That's just how it works. And at that moment you go, well, that's it. That's the purest form of unconditional love on this planet until you look at God. Because these little things grow up. And they find your failures and they're disappointed. And the unconditional thing starts to waver a little bit. Only God's love is truly unconditional. I don't even know, to be honest with you, I've been preaching for 30 some years. I don't even know how to explain it anymore. You know, when I first started out teaching, I thought I did. Very simple concept, right? But it's more profound than I even knew. So now I run out of words. I don't even know what to say. So, so let me use John to try to help us move the ball down the field in regarding our understanding of his love. John, 1 John 4, it says this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son into uh, the world to be a propitiation. You know what that word means? Sacrifice of atonement, that God had to pay God back for the rebellion that we committed. God says, if you sin, you die. Somebody had to, somebody had to die. So Jesus became the sacrifice that atoned for our sin, the ultimate expression of love, right? That's how John says it, but I still think there's maybe more poetic ways to get that in our bones than that. 
So I'm not really sure I can explain it. So I, I want to use some stories that Jesus tells to try to explain it even more. And here's the, here's the challenge, I think, in front of us. I'm going to tell you very familiar stories. And human nature just goes, got it, move on. But I don't know what else to tell you. These are the most profound examples of Jesus' own preaching regarding what the love of God and the nature of God when he loves people looks like. So I want to ask you a favor tonight. I, I, I want um, you not to lean away from these stories as if you already know its conclusion. I want you to pretend for a second you never heard them before. I want you to lean into the story and capture the picture of the nature of the Father. I want it to wow you. I want it to blow your mind. It blew the minds of the people that Jesus told, and I want it to capture our affections as well. Hear it like the first time, this concept that we've been dealing with all weekend, that this love of God will actually free us from our fears, and that's where I think these stories come in context with us. Luke 15, Jesus uses parables. Parables are just stories to illustrate reality, truth, spiritual truth. And so he shares them in regarding this subject matter about his affections. I mean, I'm not a good note writer. I've never been that guy where, hey, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to write my girlfriend, my wife a note and just says, you know, um, I don't have a girlfriend, by the way. I have a wife. But <laughs> back in the day, you know, right. I, I wasn't a note writer. I, you, you should know how I feel. I'm not here for any other reason than I'm for you, that kind of thing. It's not good, but it's what it is. Um, but nevertheless, um, I, I never wrote very many notes. But here we have uh, these notes from Jesus. And the bottom could be signed, man, I really love you. Like, this is my affection for you. This has been described as the love letter of God for his people. And I suppose if you're going to boil it down, these stories particularly talk about how much and how the love of God looks for us. So hear it that way um, tonight. Um, I want you to also know one other thing, how personal this is for God. If I said to you what you said or what you did, was I took very personally. All of us would know, our culture would know, wow, that got to the core of him. I made him angry. It got to what he loves, Right? When I say to you that this issue of God's affection is personal for him, what I'm saying is that it's the core of God's heart for you. It goes to the center of God. This is not an ancillary, one of the many things that get his best. This is his affections as far as we know. So I want to kind of raise the standard, the bar of what this means for us so that we hear it maybe in a fresh way. In Luke 15, Jesus tells these stories starting with the reality that he's always hanging around a bad crowd. Okay? So in, in verse one, it just simply says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. This is not the first time that same group of people have been described as being with Jesus. In Mark two, uh, Jesus is calling his disciples. He starts with Levi, Matthew. He says, follow me, Matthew. First thing he thinks of is I need to, I need to hang out with you and I need you to meet my friends. And the text says it was tax gatherers and sinners. Tax gatherer was a trader. It was an upper crust trader. It was a person who was very wealthy and he, he burned all of his friends and family to become wealthy. He basically extorted tax money from his own people 
to give to Rome. And he lived high on the hog and everybody hated a tax gatherer. It was the lowest of the low in the Jewish culture. But it was nevertheless a rich upper crust scum, okay? But then we have this word called sinners and guess what that represents? The lowest level of scum. The only people that like to hang around each other are the people who share the same last name called scum. These are... uh, described as notoriously evil people, like everybody knew who these people were. People that broke the law, people that marginalized others. These were just a bad crowd, people that didn't consider God, didn't consider uh, following the law. They, they were the lowest of the low. Evil people with bad reputations, violent and brutal. That's, that's the friends here, which is nothing new. Jesus is always hanging around the lowest of the low the marginalized, the, the outcast. Um, and of course, some people had a problem with that. Look at verse two. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now we read that in this 2019 mindset. And go, of course, of course Jesus eats with sinners. Of course, that's his mission. Well, it was total scandal then for them. In, in their mind, if you were serious about God, then you avoided people who sin. Now there's some, some humor in this because it's obvious that everyone's got a problem with sin. And nevertheless, that's what they thought. But here's what I want you to see. We go on here. Everyone in this story is lost except for Jesus. There are people who know they're lost. They're the sinners. They're the tax gatherers. They're the scum. And then the religious who don't think they're lost, but they're lost. They're just deceived. Everyone's lost in the story. So Jesus tells three parables in a row to make a statement about the love of God for sinners and how he feels about them and how personal it is for God, how real it is for him. And I got to believe that some of you in this room might need to hear that tonight because you have got all wrong. You've taken whatever cultural means you have and you've got history in you. You might even have enough skepticism to just keep driving you in this direction, but you're absolutely convinced God is, is in this sense, not to be trusted. He's distant, he's far off, he's distracted with bigger things, God's got lots of stuff to do, and to be interested in you doesn't make any sense. In your mind, you think that there's no way he should pay attention to you or your issues, and after all, you seem as disappointed. You've, you've fallen how many times? How many times this week? I mean, if God acts just like us, we're done, right? I'm worn out. You said, and I quit. Some of us think that God runs out of gas on us. We see him as an angry God who can't wait to crush us and expose us and embarrass us. And when we think of God, um, we think of him as happy when trouble comes our way because after all, I deserve it. So, there's all sorts of misunderstandings about God and our understanding of God, but at least we need to admit that maybe some of us in this room are struggling with those thoughts. So I want to let these brief stories overcome all your skepticism and overcome all of your anxieties and fears and all the wrong screaming narratives that are blowing up your heart because of something you've done or someplace you've been or how many times you've gone there. I want the love of God to overwhelm you 
and he tells these stories in Luke 15. Let me deal with the first two quickly. Um, Verse three through verse 10, let's read it. I'll just make a couple of points and um, they're pretty powerful in and of themselves. Again, he's, he's sitting at the table eating with these sinners and he tells this parable, this story. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not have does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Sarcasm. Pharisees are hearing this. Because the Pharisees would put themselves in the category, I don't need to repent. I do, I do religion. That's my profession. And so Jesus just says, there's going to be more joy to people who actually admit their need than people who think they don't have a need. He goes on to tell another story. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These stories are, are, I don't know, some of them kind of skip over our culture and so they don't move us as deeply and some might be more. But even that second story, this 10 silver coins has always been kind of understood in most, most writings as kind of the dowry a woman would get or an engagement ring. So just girls, imagine you lose your engagement ring, what effort will you go to find it? tear the house apart, doesn't, that doesn't seem so absurd, does it? You, you might do that. But in this situation, Jesus is just using that as an example of how tenaciously he will seek for the lost. So, pretty simple is there's a tenacity in the pursuit of God for you. He goes after the one. Are you the one? What do you think? It seems to be what he's saying here is that he is interested in those who have needs, who realize they have needs, and he's tenacious in his pursuit. It's personal for him. He knows your name. He knows where you're running. He knows why you're running. For God, he is so into the pursuit of you. Our God is unrelenting until he finds you, according to these illustrations, and and probably more than anything, which is just totally mind-blowing to me, is that when he finds you, it actually satisfies him. It brings him great joy, which is kind of a different way you need to look at love. Some of us think, God, for God, love is his job. Well, he's God. He's supposed to love. He's supposed to do it. Hmm. Love is not God's job. Love is God's heart. He's compelled by his affections to pursue you, to receive you, to tear the house apart until he finds you. This is not his job. This is his affection, which sort of changes the narrative a little bit when you consider yourself. Like if it's just you and God and you know your story and he knows your story and yet all the paranoia kind of rushes over your mind and go, I know how I would treat me. And yet he doesn't treat you like you would treat you. And he's moved by his affections. My guess is those two stories may or may not move you. I'm not certain the people that were listening thought much of it. This next one, though, however, was a mind blower. 
It is the story of the lost son, which we're most familiar with. But the reason why it was so scandalous is, is, is really the setup of this whole thing. A son who wants his father dead, who just wants his father's possessions. Now that right there, culturally, would, would send people into a tizzy, but nevertheless, this is a story. Let's, let's kind of pick it apart. And let me just kind of draw your attention to some things that just rock me in this text. He said this in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now, now that is the scandal right there. In order to get inheritance, you have to sort of wait for the father to die. In this case, he's basically saying, I don't want to wait. I'd rather just treat you like you're dead already. Give me what's mine. Could you imagine being the father? Especially when we get done looking at the type of father he is. There's no way he deserves that kind of treatment. This is not a weird dad. This is not a dad who's blown it. This is not a dad who deserves some kind of retribution from his son. This is a great dad. And the son wants nothing to do with it. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Father in heaven, great father in heaven, does, has done nothing ever wrong but been gracious and good to us. And we want nothing to do with him. I'd rather, in fact, I, I'm going to live as if you don't exist. I'm going to live like I'm you, in charge of my own life. Sovereign over my own decisions and my own soul. And God just kind of sits there. He says, okay, I won't crush you. Go ahead and behave that way. Go live that way. Sort of like the inheritance, right? Son took it. And he squandered it. It says here, he divided the property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And he squandered his property in reckless living. Do I need to define that? That's just what people do. No dad, no father, reckless living. That's what we do. And when he had spent everything, stop for a second, let me just make a side note. Just so you know, it never lasts. Whatever version of rebellion we're on, whatever version of satisfying ourselves, making ourselves happy without God, it won't last. That's why there's so many versions of the pursuit of happiness in us. We could write journals full of, well, I did it here, I did that there. This is the era of this expression and that expression because it never lasts. There isn't one pursuit of joy that satisfies apart from God. And he says, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Stop again, let me make a note about sin. Sin is always degrading. Sin always leaves you there. It's not noble. It's not sharp. It's not good. It's not healthy. It isn't. It just degrades you. Here you have a young Jewish boy and the pigs die. Now you should know what that means. It's always degrading. Some of you know that better than I do. Anyway, it goes on. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one, this is really interesting, and no one gave him anything. Stop for a second. We just read a paragraph. And in the front of the paragraph, the father gave him everything. At the end, no one gave him anything. The father always gives everything. There is no anything else apart from the father because no one gives you anything. No one can solve your greatest longing. No one can give you unconditional affection. No one can satisfy your deepest needs. No one can solve your problem of sin. No one can deal with those guilts and shames that we carry around with us. Only the father can. 
No one can give you anything. Right? But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when he sat there in the pigsty and go, man, this sucks. I'm degraded. I've got nothing. This didn't turn out at all like I planned. He came to his senses. I'm certain of that. That's what sin typically does. It leaves you miserable. At least that's coming to your senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? <laughs> it's interesting to me um, that the father is so good, even the hired hands know it. He's just good. He's got the, he's got the best reputation. When he thinks about the father, he goes, no, everyone digs him. What was I thinking? He's got the greatest reputation, notorious reputation. And he goes on. How many of my father's servants, hired servants, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, now just imagine, this is kind of him rehearsing in his head the speech he's got to give his dad after the stupid squandering and stupid judgments he made against his father. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's interesting, isn't it? That statement to me is just a reality of another thing that sin does. Sin always confuses you. Because what he concluded when he came to his senses, he totally forgot about the father's love. There was no way he thought that he could get back. So what he concluded was he can fix it himself. I'll work my way out of it. I'll be a hired hand. Again, a distortion, a confusion that comes because of our sin. Nevertheless, that's where he was at. It was so bad in his life, he would think that was good enough. But here's the, here's the story. After he rehearsed that in his head, he rose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The father's always watching. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel that he's always looking? Not as a judgmental, I'm going to crush you, how could you? But a longing father waiting for you to come home. Like a dad who's just so compassionate for you um, and towards you that he just can't stop looking out the window. When are they going to return? He's always on the lookout for his kids. So I don't know. I don't know where you've been. I, I know he's looking. I, I don't know where you've landed or how you've squandered. I, I don't know all that, but I know he's looking. I suppose at the end we'll have this great conclusion about, well, then just come to your senses and come on home because that's what the Father longs for. And, and isn't it interesting that he saw him and felt great compassion? I mean, I don't even know how to describe this. The, the Father's compassion is beyond description. Beyond description. To be, to be fair, I struggle with the issue of compassion. What immediately happens to me, and don't judge me, but this truly happens... I can read a story or hear a story and go, well, you're the cause of your own trouble, your own misery. You guess you get to learn. And, and, and people would say, well, you don't have very much compassion. That's probably true. He wrote the definition of compassion. If anybody has a right to look at a mess like us and say, you know, I've given and I've given and I've given. I went the ultimate lengths to give and you keep walking off done. I'm done. And yet he never runs out of compassion. The tank is full, always full, always looking, always ready to grant it to us. The text says, 
that the son or the father ran in an undignified way, picked up his tunic and ran towards his son. It's kind of like a tackle kiss. Grabbed him and started hugging and kissing his neck. Again, not a thing fathers would do. They would stand on the porch and wait for you to come and fix it. He was just so into his son. He, he was in a hurry to forgive. Isn't it true that nothing in our world looks or works like God? If you and I fail in life, we pay for it. If you flunk, you don't pass. If you don't do a good job, you get fired. If you fail in marriage, you get divorced. Everything you mess up turns into failure. But in this particular case, and I think it's Jesus' way of declaring something so radically different than the way the world works. When you and I fail God and come home, he throws a party. Unlike everything else in our life, we fail, we lose. In this situation, we fail, we come home. He, he makes a big celebration. That's pretty cool. That's pretty radical. It's interesting to me that the father never actually says to his son, I forgive you. Does he? It's not in the text. He never says, hey, I see it. I see how contrite you are. I grant you forgiveness. It's not there. He just shows it in the celebration. And here's why. Because he knows why you're coming home. All that he needs to know is in the narrative of your walk back home. You're saying by coming home, oh, I figured it out. You're good. I figured it out. All that was a waste of time. And I was wrong. And I want to be here. That's called repentance. And he knows. He doesn't say, okay, son, I need you to really work hard at making me feel good about you being here. He already knows. It's the winsomeness of the father that draws the son home. And he forgives. He's in a hurry to forgive. And I think this is fascinating how it ends, is that he's even quicker to restore. Again, the kid gets into the speech. He's prepared, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate from outside by his own choice. Dad, I wish you were dead. To dad saying, come in. I'm going to give it all to you again. Here's the ring. Here's the robe. Here's the inheritance. It's all back. Like it never happened. And if you want to just kind of keep ringing with the good news of the gospel message, isn't that the conclusion? Like it never happened? As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. What sin? He remembers it no more. There is no charge against God's elect because he poured out his judgment on his own son. All of the sin is punished. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the picture of our father. So I have a couple of thoughts before we pray. What are we doing? I wouldn't know. I really wouldn't know. But what are we doing? What version of grabbing, grabbing the goodness of God without wanting God with it are we doing? 
What version of saying, God, just keep pouring out from heaven. I'm glad I have health. I'm glad I have a job. I'm glad I have friends. I'm glad I have everything that you give, but I would really prefer if you sat this one out. I would really like it if you didn't cramp my style or somehow bring too much rigidity to my life because I want to be my own version of authority. What are we doing? What are we chasing after? Here's what I know. Here's what I know from my own life. It's exhausting, isn't it? Isn't it exhausting? Everyone I know has gone through a season where we thought we knew better and we thought it was worth it. Different levels of kind of putting our foot in that water only to find out, well, it wasn't. I come to my senses, it was stupid. But here's the reality of God's affections for you. He's looking He's ready to grant forgiveness and restoration to full sonship. Come home. I asked you in the very beginning, why do you sing? What's the motion behind your singing? And you threw down great stuff. Great stuff. And I suppose it's sort of like cheating to be at a retreat at a church camp and, and not have those answers come out of us. But when you go back home in two weeks on a Thursday night, can you say it? Can you say this is why you live and this is who you serve? Can you say he's your father and he's really, really good and there's none like him? Can he be the song that you don't necessarily have to sing but it shows up in how you make decisions and what you say no to and what you say yes to? All I want you to do, we're gonna sing in just a second. I want you to be blown away by his love for you. If you are that son or daughter who has squandered his goodness well, he's ready. He's so ready. And you're his home. You're his home as fast as you can say, I want to be. That's it. Just thank him for that. Father, your affections for us is just really hard to grasp. It's so wonderful and beautiful, and God, we confess we need it more than anything. We are by nature wanderers. But it is your love that welcomes us. It draws us. It follows us. You are the persistent, tenacious dad who comes after your own. I just pray for us, Lord, where we sort out our wanderings that we'd all come home because we've concluded that you're better than everything else. Amen.